And you are listening to KXSFLP San Francisco Community Radio. It's 101. I got some guests in the studio, but first let me tell you what we just heard. We just heard from the Stink Bugs doing Clean House. Double Meaning is the name of their new 12-inch. You can find that on the Swashbuckling Hobo record label out of uh, Melbourne, Australia. No, out of... uh, Brisbane, Australia. There we go. Wild Zeros before that from France to Dig the Dirt. Digging It is the name of their new record. We heard Les Calamities doing Tout la Nuit from a new collection called Encore, 1983 to 1987. A French female band there, Born Bad, reissuing that. CTMF featuring Wild Billy Childish doing their version of Viva la Rock and Roll. Brave Protector was the name of the record from uh, 2019. They sold when they played here last. And uh, we heard Black Doldrums doing Sleepless Nights, their new record called Dead Awake. You can find that on Fuzz Club Records. Billiam from his new collection, Ever Feel Like Glue. He did the song Mini Golf. That is my personal edit, so you don't hear any bad words. And Sam Snitchy before that, doing Cake. From the new record, Get Me Wrong, out on Voodoo Rhythm Records. It is KXSF. We got one message, and then we are going to introduce our guests in the studio. Support for KXSF San Francisco Community Radio is provided by Babylon Burning, San Francisco's oldest screen printer. Babylon Burning is a San Francisco legacy business offering full-service screen printing for your band or company. Located in San Francisco's Soma District at 63 Bluxom Street, Babylon Burning has served the Bay Area since 1976. Their website is BabylonT.com. That's B-A-B-Y-L-O-N-T-E-E dot com. All right, and big thanks to Babylon Burning for helping us out here at KXSF, and big thanks to my guests in the studio. I have the one, the only, Steve DePace from Flipper, and someone I just met right now, Alex from the Tenderloin Museum. Is it the tender, just the Tenderloin Museum? Tenderloin Museum, yes. All right. Alex Soto. <laughs> Alex Soto. There you go. Thanks for coming in, guys. Absolutely. So tell me, why are you here? What, uh, we, why were do just, I... we were just walking down the street, and the door was open, and we heard music, and we just came on in to see what the hell was see, going on. See, I appreciate that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, when it's cool people like you guys. <laughs> no, no, but, uh, well, Flipper's playing a show at um, Great America Music Hall, one of the coolest mm-hmm. venues anywhere. And um, Mr. Alex Spoto here was one of the gentlemen who put it together um, as part of the uh, a live music series that tenderloin museum in san francisco is uh had put together and we got to mention dale hoyt we have to mention dale hoyt yep so the occasion for the show uh was uh in part uh because my organization the tenderloin museum uh has been booking live music in the neighborhood in the tenderloin specifically um live music that you know has some connection to the history of the neighborhood in a way and of course there's a, a lot of punk happenings uh in the 80s uh a fellow named dale hoyt uh organized a, a gallery show that we have uh up in the museum now it'll be running through i believe july 2nd and uh is a collection of video interviews posters ephemera photography that kind of stuff about uh the intersection of the punk rock scene and the performance art scene in the tenderloin in the 1980s uh a big part of that was the sound of music club on uh 162 turk street where flipper 
Uh, Played there many times. Many, many times. Many yeah, times. it's one of those bands you see on many, many posters. Um, and uh, so to kind of extend this uh, project that Dale was working on, uh, one of the things that we uh, that we booked was a killer show at the Great American. We have uh, Flipper, of course, headlining and uh and the mutants right uh who are who are supporting right now and right. and perhaps a uh, a surprise uh, yeah. an additional surprise right. we can uh we can announce a little bit later we had booked a group called the longshoremen who unfortunately because of some uh some uh, health, health issues. issues uh had to bow out so uh and they were they were definitely a little more on the performance art uh, side of the spectrum but um and are, and are interviewed in our show, so you can kind of learn about them more if you visit the museum. But uh, I guess the last thing to say on that note is, you know, Dale, uh, celebrated video artist, uh, local guy, lived in, lived in Soma for many years, taught at SFAI, uh, and sadly passed away a few weeks before the show opened. Oh, um, no. Yes, uh, but uh, he was a big Flipper fan, a uh, big Sound of Music fan, and just uh, all around, you know, sweet guy that was uh, really dedicated to the making of things, making of art things, had a great sense of humor and uh, a really unique sort of perspective on the on the world and how it works. So, um, you know, he definitely looms large in this in this show that's up at the museum. And uh, you know, while he won't be able to be with us on Thursday, I know he'll he'll be he'll be looking down. You know, right? Yeah, yeah. And we're lucky enough that he was able to get it to you know oh, get yeah. all that together. Or yeah, that you guys were together, able. Right. That's pretty great. Yeah, a nice legacy. Yeah. So. So what? We're excited about this show. <laughs> we haven't played with the mutants in well, we played with them the last time we played with them was two thousand five, so how long ago is that? A uh, hundred years ago. Seventeen <laughs> seventeen years or something like that. That was the last time we played with them. We did a Fab Mab reunion show at the Fillmore, which was amazing. It was super fun. <clears throat> Dead Kennedys, Flipper and Mutants. Straight off of a bill from the Mabuhai Gardens in the early 80s or something. <laughs> um, and so this show, yeah, reunites Flipper and the Mutants at, in a great venue with, uh, like I said, we're, we're like Alex just mentioned, we're, we're waiting on word from a surprise guest uh, opening act. So we're waiting to hear on that. Very nice. Um, but anyway, yeah, this show's going to be amazing. It's going to be great. And there's a little something uh, new for the flipper configuration as well. Oh, oh that's right. right. Yeah. We can I talk was going to ask about that, yeah. This is the first Fletcher. time we're going to be, we have a great, amazing singer-vocalist by the name of Fletcher Shears, who is the singer, well, actually, he's the, well, he's part of a duo with his twin brother um, in a band called The Garden. And um, we became familiar with them this past December, they called Flipper and invited us to play a couple of shows with them in L.A. And we went and played those shows with them, and we were just amazed at these guys. They're so talented. It's just two guys. Um, Fletcher plays drums and does vocals, and his brother Wyatt does vocals and plays guitar. And they use backing tracks and props and things, and they, they're all over the place. They're amazing. Kids love them. What like, happened to David Yao? Well, David retired from Flipper. He is. Uh, he just texted me today. He's off somewhere filming a movie. He's his acting career is taking I, off. I read about that. That's exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's funny. We uh, 
when we were in Portland playing a show with him on vocals back in 2019, we were sitting in a restaurant and um, I recognized three comedians. They were there doing a show in Portland. I recognized three of them, Bob Goldthwait, um, a couple (laughs) other guys. And I recognized them all, you know, and we went and talked to them. And he just texted me today. He's doing a movie with one of those guys somewhere. And I don't know where he is, but he's shooting a movie. with Well, awesome. I can't wait to see that. Yeah. Um, So David Yao's, you know, he's a very talented guy. He does a lot of things. And, you know, everything he does keeps him busy. So he just kind of, you know, ran its course with us. And he's off doing other things. Yeah. I just thought he was an ingenious choice to... Yeah, he be the was, singer of Flipper. He was fantastic. So. I'll never forget this. I got to mention. Ooh, all right. We played. We toured Europe in 2019 with David. We played in some little club in Germany, and uh, there's so it was low ceilings, and there so happened to be like water pipes or something like hanging low from the ceilings. I'm playing drums, right? And I'm at the moment I have my eyes closed. I'm looking down or something. I'm just rocking out, and I look up and I see David hanging like a bat upside down he's got his feet hooked over this water pipe and he's hanging upside down like a bat singing with the mic yep (laughs) it was the greatest thing i've ever seen in my life it was amazing yeah he was great he's all over the place crowd surfing and all oh my god yeah wild um so he was really excellent we 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 were very happy to have him with us for a couple of years very cool yeah and actually more than a couple he played. He he started out with us in 2015, and just recently, uh, well, yeah. you know, bowed out to go do other things. And to he become may, a famous he, actor. He, I mean, <laughs> a, a bit of a spoiler. He might be doing something with uh, Jesus Lizard. I don't know. Oh, I know they were writing new songs together and stuff like that. So they that might be part of why he had mm-hmm. too much on his plate. So, yeah. But we all had a blast together. You know, it was really fun. A good run. Right. I mean, I saw you a couple of times with him and I was just like, yes, this is, you know, if you can't have the original stuff, you need something that's a little inspired. And yeah. So Fletcher is amazing. He brings a lot of uh, really, really good energy um, to the thing. So we're really it's going to be amazing. Well, Uh, we'll look forward to seeing that on Thursday. Yeah. yeah. And I will give a little. uh, teaser we're gonna have some tickets to give away in a little bit but right. we're gonna keep chatting first <laughs> and play some songs and whatnot is flipper gonna do any new songs new are you gonna start writing any uh i think so yeah yeah i i think so mm-hmm. i mean it's always exciting to write new material and uh when was the last time you guys put out new new stuff? the last time we put out brand new material was uh when we had chris novoselic with us um geez it was a long time ago back in 2008 or something nine 2009 10 mm-hmm. somewhere in there maybe 2010 so it's due. or something we, yeah geez when <laughs> was due. that so that's 12 years ago right yeah. mm-hmm. every do- dozen or so years we'll put out yeah there. why not <laughs> why not <laughs> and i was thinking you know most people know the story of Flipper, but, you know, there might be some people out there that don't. And it's always fun to hear it from one of the originals, one that was there. So why wow. don't you give a little history of Flipper for the audience? Wow. How did Flipper get started? So we started in, two, in uh, 1979. Um, at that time, there was an amazing music scene, punk rock scene happening in San Francisco. R- one of the great scenes in the country. 
which started in sort of the mid to late 70s, right? So I came on, I was born and raised in San Francisco. Uh, after I graduated high school and moved out of my parents' house and got my first real job and whatnot, I moved to San Jose. Lived there for about a year. It was a great experience. I had my own apartment. My, you know, for the first time in my life, I'm taking care of myself and had my own job and everything else. After about a year of that experience, I decided what I wanted to do with my life was do music. You know, that's what I wanted to do. So I moved back to San Francisco, moved back into my parents' basement, set up my drum kit, and I started. There was a place, it, I think it still exists, called the Musicians Exchange in San Francisco. It was a, a place back in the day before the internet. It was a place, an office where you could go and you look through files of like musicians and bands looking for musicians and vice versa, right? So yeah. I started finding people there to kind of jam with in my parents' basement. <laughs> and then I discovered the Mabuhai Gardens and I started going there. And uh, I, one of the first bands I saw was a band called Negative Trend. And then. Another band I saw was the Avengers. And, um, you know, it was an amazing scene. Incredible bands, all just really creative. And nobody, every, everybody, you know, all the different groups were very unique. Um, no one sounded like anyone else. The Mutants were happening back in those days. The Avengers, so many bands, countless bands in San Francisco. They were all great. And the Mabuhai Gardens was like the clubhouse, you know, it's where everybody played and everybody hung out and everybody got to know each other. So one night after the Avengers played, I um, approached Jimmy, who sadly passed away a couple of years ago, but Jimmy Avenger, as he was known, um, guy by the name of Michael Goldberg just wrote a book about him. Yeah, I just, I just got it. Yeah, a... that just came out yeah. recently. Yeah. Anyhow, I approached Jimmy and I said, hey man, you know, I love your band and I just, I'm a drummer and I'm. I love the scene here and all the bands and like, how do I get into a band? You know? And he told me, he goes without hesitation. He goes, I'll tell you how to do it. You go to Aquarius records on 18th and Castro <laughs> and they got a, um, a billboard, you know, and you put up a little index card with your name and phone number drummer looking for punk band. I did that a couple days later. I got a phone call from Will Shatter. Who's also sadly left us way back in 19, um, 87 he died anyway um he called me up and said hey i'm in this band called negative trend i go man i just saw you guys recently you guys were amazing he goes yeah we fired the drummer and the singer quit so we're auditioning people so i went down auditioned and i got the gig and I, all of a sudden i'm in negative trend and uh you know i don't know that lasted like six months or a year we put out that classic four song ep that was amazing that was my first recording experience and that came out great. And then, um, so after I left that band and eventually there was a, another version of that band and then they broke up and then Will Shatter was available and I was available. So we got together with Ted Falcone and Bruce, Lu actually originally the first singer we had was, um, a guy by the name of, uh, he had been in the sleepers, um, Ricky sleeper. He was known as Ricky Williams. Williams yeah. Yeah, he was really I, great. There's a book out of uh, Michael Belfour from The Sleepers wrote a book. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Michael just passed away, too. Yep. Um, but Ricky Williams was really great. Unfortunately, he was really messed up on drugs. And the last gig we did with him as a singer, he's the one that gave us the name Flipper. But the last gig we did with him, 
he was he picked up the mic stand and was swinging it like this over his head like a lasso and it had the one of those heavy metal bottoms on it and he hit will shattered right between the eyes knocked him out cold in the middle of the set you know and that was the end of the show and good way uh, to end it i yeah. guess <laughs> so, dramatic and then you know he was he was kind of a mess but we loved him but we had to let him go and then we got bruce loose and um so but ricky the story about how we got to be called flipper was after three or four rehearsals with ricky we were writing we were you know i mean we went in and the four of us got together and we went into a record rehearsal studio and just started making noise and writing songs and three or four rehearsals into it we i think it was will shatter who turned to all of us and said well this seems to be working out so we're gonna need a name and there was a few seconds pause and we were all i remember my wheels were turning i was trying to think of something you know and ricky williams was the first one to speak up and he said how about flipper and again, a pause and no one else had any other ideas. So we said, okay, you know, that, that fast, that quick, no <laughs> yep. discussion, no argument, no debate, just, okay, we're flipper. And it turns out that Ricky, I found this out many years later. I had no idea why he said flipper, you know, but many years later, I found out through a bunch of his roommates and stories and rumors and things. And, but I confirmed it with his roommates he had a menagerie of pets, goldfish, bird, lizard, cat. They were all named Flipper. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess I surmised that maybe because he was so messed up on drugs, Flipper was the only name he could remember. So <laughs> everything has to be He's Flipper. adding a band to his menagerie. I'll just call, call it Flipper too. Yeah, I right. To exactly. <laughs> it's a good, it's an origin story that kind of doubles down on the guttural, like yeah. intuitive, uh, you know, raw power that uh, girds and Flipper. And, and with that, Ted Falcone, our guitar player, who had an art background he had been a an art student an art professor and all this other stuff so um he came up with the logo he created the logo out of thin air and the logo took off like wildfire went viral as they say today. yeah back in the old day we used to write it on our school books yeah i mean and it was simple and it worked and it was yeah. so cool um, now would you have thought is. back then and your parents basement playing mm. drums that you would still be in flipper this many years later no not at all <laughs> no man 40 something years it's crazy huh yeah it is crazy <laughs> it's exciting you know 99 percent of bands don't last a year two right. years three years especially man. punk bands i mean you're lucky if you get out a seven inch from them yeah right <laughs> yeah indeed so what, when did, what, what's your background? When did you, were you were in the scene, hanging out, going to the shows? I, and... I grew up in Boston. Okay. So I was there and I moved to San Francisco after I graduated college in 1990. What was the cool radio station in Boston? There was uh, a cool. There was many cool radio stations because okay. it was a big college town. Right. So I like MIT's WMBR. We went there. Harvard. We, we went to the Adwell. MIT station. Yep. I could tell you a funny story about that. Oh, please do. Okay, on this particular tour, which was probably 1982, I think it was 1982. So we had the truck, the flipper truck. Uh -huh. It was like an old bread truck or something. And uh, and um, we, uh, let's see. Oh, we um, got a flat tire in the desert. We were heading from California east to do a whole national tour. And we blew a tire in the desert. 
and um, I think Highway 10 out in the middle of the desert. And so I hitchhiked to the closest town with the flat tire. We didn't have a spare. And I, so I took literally the flat tire with me and hitchhiked <laughs> to the nearest town, which was 20 miles away, to get the tire fixed. And then I had to hitchhike back. So in the meantime, Ted Falcone had walked out into the desert, you know, and he, he's a big rock collector, you know, so he collects rocks everywhere we go. So he finds this rock and it looks similar to a heart. You know, it was like a, a little heart shaped rock, not like, you know, uh, Valentine's Day heart, but like a something. The organ. That, yeah, the organ. Right? <laughs> okay. And so he gets it in his mind that this is a petrified chicken heart. That's, and he was dead serious, petrified chicken heart. Because uh, organs don't petrify, so it would have been a real find, you know, okay. in the, um, what, what's the science behind, uh, is it paleontology? It, or, or, I don't know what it, it is. What's, yeah, I think it's paleontology. It yeah, paleontology, sure. Um, so we go to Boston, right? <clears throat> we get to Boston on the tour. And the whole way he's been talking about this chicken heart. And he, uh, to the point where he was talking about making a uh, like a horror film, the petrified chicken heart or something, you know, the giant chicken heart that ate Boston or whatever. <laughs> anyway, we, could, we couldn't, you know, we were like, we've had it with hearing about this chicken heart. So the guy who was playing bass with us at that time was Bruno. He's an old friend of ours. He's done tours with us and stuff when whoever didn't make the tour. He was with us on base on this particular tour. We get to MIT. We do an interview at the radio station. While we're at the, you know, MIT, Bruno comes up with the ID. He says, let's find the paleontology department mm. and go find a professor and show him this chicken heart you've got, Ted. So they do it. They go find a professor. They go into his classroom. He's sitting on his desk. You know, there's not a class there, but he's like at his desk. Or they find him in his office or something. And they go in there and they show him the, they tell him the story and show him the rock, you know. And the guy studies it, pulls out his magnifying glass and everything, looks at it, studies it. This is an MIT professor. Looks at it and he looks up at the two guys, Ted and Bruno, and he goes, well, gentlemen, that's a very interesting story that you've just told me. And I'm looking at this thing and what I think you have here is a rock. <laughs> <laughs> So that shut up Ted for the rest of the tour. Oh. We didn't have to hear about the chicken heart anymore. But um, anyway, uh, I mentioned Boston. Boston was such a great market for us and such a great fun town. We played so many great. I mean, there was the Rat Skeller, known as the Rat. Yep. There was the. That's where uh, I saw you play. Yeah, and then the uh, another place I loved playing was they used to do afternoon matinees and night shows. What was that called? It was a mobster club. What oh, was... the channel. The channel. Yep. Yeah. We went in there with this. Uh, we, <laughs> had this yeah. we had this uh, skinny Irish kid from Boston as a tour manager, driver, roadie for us on, on this particular tour. And we were playing that venue. And uh, he mouthed off to somebody. He was... And I, I was sitting at the bar having a cold beer. This is after we loaded in. We were about to do sound check. And he, I don't know what he said to somebody, but it pissed these guys off. And they didn't care who he was or who he was with. And I heard a commotion, and I looked to my left, and I see these two big guys. And they've got this dude that was with us, this skinny Irish boy from Boston who thought he was tough. 
They yeah. got him like he's a battering ram, like he's a, they're holding him like a log, and they ba- they bash his head into the door, the exit door, you know the pull the push bar. They bashed his head into the push bar, opened the door, threw him out in the parking lot, and they said, "We'll let you back in when you change your attitude, son." You know. <laughs> <laughs> And then the Boston Globe did a great review of our single Sex Bomb when it came out. Oh, my God. The Boston Globe. <laughs> yeah. And they uh, I'll never forget the quote the guy, the, the uh, critic wrote about the song Sex Bomb. He said, Sex Bomb is like it's akin to Louie Louie boiled down to a burnt pot. <laughs> <laughs> Very uh, nice. <laughs> yeah. But there was a really, oh, there was a really cool, I might have been the college station there. I don't know which college, but there was a college station in Boston, one of the. Well, they, every one had them, yeah. Harvard, yeah. Uh, Boston College, Boston University, Emerson College. Yeah. Still. If you said the call letters, I would recognize it, but I don't re- recall which college station it was. But this was in the early 80s, and Sex Bomb was just really happening, that song. And, um. They decided, one of the DJs, I guess, put it out there to his audience during one of his shows. He goes, hey, listen, um, why doesn't everybody send in their rendition of Sex Bomb? You know, all the punk bands, local bands, whatever. He put the call out for everybody to send in their, on a cassette, their rendition of Sex Bomb. And he had thought he would play it during his two or three hour, four hour, whatever his slot was. He would, during his show... Well, they got so many submissions. I remember this happening. This is real. They got so many submissions, like hundreds, if not, I don't know how many, hundreds of submissions. It ended up that the station decided to do a 48-hour marathon of all these cassette tape <laughs> wow. versions of renditions of <laughs> They did a weekend. They did a whole Saturday-Sunday 48-hour marathon. <laughs> That's how many submissions they got. Oh, my gosh. That's and pretty. somebody sent me like uh, the longest cassette you could get was a two hour cassette. Somebody sent me a two hour just random from the radio station. All right. Like, Here's two hours of the 48 hours we Now, had. do you still have that? That's something that I, needs to go I, up on Bandcamp or something. Yeah, I must <laughs> for have everyone it. to hear. I must have it somewhere. Or if anyone, yeah. yeah. Anyone out there in listener land has. Uh, Knows I know we got some people over in Massachusetts listening. And the last time we played Boston was at the Rat, uh-huh. and that was in in the eighties, probably eighty seven, probably nineteen eighty seven. And there was a full on riot. We uh. we caused a complete utter <laughs> riot. It, what did you do? Well, I can tell you, I watched the whole thing as it happened. Um, I mean, what did you do to cause it, and what? Yeah, <laughs> and well, what did you do? Bruce Luce was up front singing, and there was this. It was a low stage; anybody could climb up onto the stage. Yeah, there was a punk rock girl with combat boots on, and um, I don't know whether Bruce was taunting her. I don't know what caused her to do this, but I saw her. Bruce turned around and started walking toward my drum kit i think he was gonna grab a beer that was sitting on the drum riser or something like that and i watched and saw like this punk girl jumped up onto the stage and ran up to bruce his back is to her she's got combat boots on and she kicked him as hard as she could right between the legs you know 
and hit him right where it counts. And I saw his face just turn white and his eyes open up. And he was like, that must have been really painful. And then she turned around and ran back out into the crowd and dove into the crowd. Well, once he, he turned around and identified, identified her and who had done it, he, ran, he jumped into the crowd after her, you know, and that erupted the whole riot thing. I mean, he was swinging at her. And everybody started swinging at everybody else. Oh it was God. like a out of a, mo- a Western movie, like a cowboy movie in a bar fight. Uh-huh. And it, it went like all the way to the back of the club. Everybody was punching and swinging and chairs were flying. The whole thing erupted into a, a you know, yep. <laughs> a crazy riot. So there was this guy who ran the club. I guess he was the owner operator of the club, right? So I was the one who had to go try to get paid after the gig, right? We just destroyed this whole club. <laughs> so I had to do it because, I mean, you know, I mean, you live day to day back in those days from show to show. And you had to have the money to put in the gas tank to get to the next town, you know. Yep. So I had to go. Get, and so they're sweep, the, the staff is sweeping up the club and cleaning everything up and stuff. And I see the guy standing out there, you know, uh, you know, sir, you know, looking perusing looking at all the damage and looking at everything right so it turned i went i approached him and he had a um he had had throat cancer so he had one of these little talk boxes that yeah. he had to put his up name to his... his name was mitch he was a super awesome dude there you go yeah. <laughs> so very tall gentleman yep. i remember gray hair gray beard or something yep. like, i remember the guy so I yeah. go up to him and I explained what happened. Oh, I go up to him and he looks at me with this little talk box thing and he goes, so uh, what happened? <laughs> just like that. <laughs> and I explained to him what happened. I told him the story I just told you. And he goes, all right. You know, and it was all good. You know, they paid cool. us yeah, and see? everything was fine. Cool guy. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah. Every time I went to the rat, I always loved talking to you. know, be like, hey, <laughs> what's up, yeah, bitch? I loved Boston. Boston was, remember the combat zone? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We had a business meeting with a, a booking agent or something like that in the combat zone, right in the heart of it, man. It was wild. <laughs> Not there anymore. <laughs> All cleaned up. <laughs> wow. But anyway, I love Boston. It's just a great town. Uh, Steve, do you... Uh, Describing these shows just made me think about our town, San Francisco. San Francisco. And uh, I'm wondering for maybe like listeners who, you know, weren't around or are not familiar with the sound of music. Also, you know, Turk Street Studios, you made all of your records at Hyde Street Studios or many of them. You know, what was uh, describe playing at the sound of music? Like, what was that like? What was the scene like? You know, the owner-operator, Celso so Roberto, was uh, kind of the, an epic character. At the time, yeah. the only game in town, the only club in town, had been the Babuhai Gardens for a long time. <clears throat> then this club also run, owned, owned, was it owned by... Uh, I believe he owned it. Uh, I'm, what was his I, name? His name was Celso Ruperto. Celso, yeah, yeah, he yeah. was a also, Filipino guy. Also and, a Filipino guy. The guy who owned the Mabuhai was a Filipino yeah. guy. Yeah. And then another Filipino guy... Uh, the Sound of Music, right? So the two Filipino guys were, you know, in competition with each other, right? But anyway, the um, the promoter at the Mabuhai Gardens was Dirk, Dirk Dirksen. Yeah. Well, anyway, Dirk considered all the bands that played at the Mabuhai his family, his kids, you know. And um, 
when we started getting offers to play the sound of music he was hurt his feelings were hurt and he got mad and he didn't want these bands to go play anywhere else you know and um you know all the bands were itching to kind of spread their wings and play other uh clubs and towns and whatever but you know anyway so i remember you know when it came when flipper booked a show at the sound of music dirksen approached me at the mab and he said if you play that sound of music you'll never play here again so i guess he was telling all the bands <laughs> if you play there you'll never play here again which of course we played there many times yeah. afterwards but we went down and played the the sound of music like many times we were almost kind of like the pseudo house band anyway um when that... did when did the sound of music close because i know it wasn't around when i got here 1990. The last punk shows would have been in 1987. Oh, okay. uh, I'm not sure how much longer it remained as a bar uh, before that, but it was, it was, to the best of my knowledge, I've had some trouble pinpointing a date as to when it was first called Sound of Music, but I mean, it was, uh, you know, it was a bar that catered to the trans community that lived on that block and a lot of those SRO hotels. Um, the hotel at Sound of Music uh, was called the El Rosa. There's a great sign. Uh, that still kind of exists on the outside. You can see a ghost sign. It's one of the kind of most vivid ones in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and uh, one of the things we talk about a lot at the museum, which is just a great San Francisco piece of history, is the Compton's Cafeteria Riot. Pre-Stonewall queer militant uprising of, I mean, they wouldn't have maybe called themselves trans people at the time, but, uh, you know, we're hanging out at this Compton's, this sort of Denny's, Shoney's type of diner in the Tenderloin, and we're getting hassled by the police, and, uh, you know, uh, this is 1966. There was this uprising of a lot of the, the folks that were hanging out there. And, um, you know, anecdotally, uh, a lot of those people you know, lived on that block, on those kind of two blocks of Turk between, you know, Powell and, I guess, Jones. And the El Rosa was one of the hotels where, you know, some of those people could have stayed and rented a room. Um I've <clears throat> once upon a we had some program at the museum where somebody brought up the sound of music and it was like, Oh yeah, it's you know, S and M. It was a sort of that was the play there, you know, in the fifties. It was so that kind I of I have an ashtray. I stole an ashtray from the sound of music. Oh yeah. It was a gla a round glass ashtray and the design of it, clear glass, <clears throat> and then there was a black chain that ran around the circle. And in the middle, it said S dash M. Yeah. Nice. And I just had to have that asterisk. <laughs> yeah. I still have it. Good. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm not sure when Celso took it over formally, but uh, Ian Webster, who you might know, he was like the door guy uh, that worked pretty much throughout the whole uh, tenure of Sound of Music doing punk shows. Uh, you know, he said Celso had the place going and, you know, wasn't uh, a super proactive businessman at the time. There were some drag shows happening, but it was mostly kind of a, you know, dive bar, working class bar, whatever. And around 1980, uh, you know, he started, he saw the success of what was going on up at the Mab and, yeah. and uh, uh, started having punk shows there. And, yeah. uh, and it was maybe a little less clicky than the Mab was. Because at that point, it was, it was a big deal to play at the Mab, probably 1980, you know, it was... Uh, it had been, its profile had been raised over these, you know, couple of years of big touring acts coming through and whatnot. So it seemed like there was a a wider range of some of the weirder, stranger practitioners of punk at that time. Well, I remember one time, there was a few memorable shows there. Once um, 
someone put a M80 or something in the toilet and blew out, blew up the toilet, and the whole club flooded. You know, with wow. like two inches of water, it just was gushing water out of the one of the men's room or Fitting something for Flipper. Yeah, that's yeah, your natural habitat. There you go. Right. <laughs> and and years later, <clears throat> we played a show. I think it was in, I think it was at City Gardens in Trenton. I think. Um, some years after that, maybe maybe a couple of years after that or whatever, um, this guy came up to me and said, "Hey, you remember that show at the Sound of Music?" You know, when the place flooded, I go, yeah, of course. He goes, I met my wife there. I met my, you know, <laughs> we left that show. We fell in love at your show and we drove to Las Vegas and got married. Oh and God. we're still married. You know, wow. it was like, um, and uh, there was another uh, crazy, exp- I told this story yesterday, last night on Radio Valencia, but <clears throat> there was a, some another a different show at the sound of music um someone offered me a tab of acid you know and and this was after sound check or something before the show started and i took half of it it was a little piece of blotter acid right and i took half of it and um you know and the classic textbook story and half you know an hour goes by i didn't feel anything so i took the other half big mistake It hit me like a ton of bricks, and I literally, this has never happened to me before, I literally didn't, I forgot the knowledge of how to play the drums I left me. I had no idea how to play this oh. drum kit that was in front of me that I was being told I needed to play, you know? like. And I, I found the guy who, I went into a panic, you know, it was time for us to play. And uh, my drum kit was all set up and ready to go, and the band was all ready to go, and I didn't know how to play the drums. So I was like, what am I going to do? So I found the guy who had given me the tab of acid, and I grabbed him by the lapel, and I was shaking him going, his name was Gino. Gino, you got to teach me how to play the drums. You got to tell me right now how to play the drums. <laughs> like, And I remember just doing it, and it, every song I remember felt like an eternity but somehow i got through it i don't know what i was doing or playing or sounded like but um every song was an eternity it felt like forever i just wanted it to be over (laughs) anyway Mm. alex why don't you just tell us a little bit about the uh museum yeah of course i'm i'm very as i was telling you i was looking at the website it just looks so cool so like yeah Sure. So the Tenderloin Museum uh, is a community history museum that's focused pretty specifically on the history of the neighborhood. <clears throat> we're located in the, the Cadillac Hotel, which is on the corner of Eddie and Leavenworth, and uh, was one of the sort of more grand hotel buildings that got put up there after the 1906 earthquake and fire. Uh, certainly compared to the El Rosa, where the sound of music is, the Cadillac uh, you know, earns, earns its name. Uh, but in the seventies, it was the first, uh, hotel to convert over to supportive housing and, uh, functioned as a community space through a lot of the eighties for various, you know, tenant organizing, uh, activities as well as, you know, art, art stuff. Um, and, uh, the museum, you know, we've been there, uh, in that kind of corner, uh, you know, retail space. A lot of people come in and ask me if. I remember when this when it was a sizzler, and I, I do not. I was not around for that for that point in time. But, I don't uh, even remember that. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it seemed like the world's most colorful sizzler. Uh, 
But yeah, the museum has been there for about seven years. We have a uh, permanent exhibition on the history of the neighborhood. Uh, and then we also have a, a gallery space, which is where Dale Hoyt's punk rock performance art project is, uh, is up uh, through the end of June. And uh, we do resident-led walking tours, usually on Saturday afternoons, and then quite a bit of public programming, which you know ranges from everything like history lectures, movie screenings, you know, community gatherings to uh, you know, Flipper and the Mutants at Great American. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, you know, the, the museum is there to you know both I think uh, uh, tell a story that's not frequently told or known by a lot of you know san franciscans uh certainly the the tenderloin uh has uh so uh you know a certain reputation uh and that uh you know for more superficial understandings uh especially in the present time I and mean, not to diminish yeah. what challenges are, are present in the neighborhood at all um but you know it's also a neighborhood that pretty much since it's uh, existence uh you know came into being it was a, a vice district it was uh and the origin of the name is that the uh it, it comes from a kind of a term for like area where police graft would allow for vice uh activities to persist um you know the uh, uh specifically it was a cop in new york who had a you know tough beat and there were some gambling dens brothels that kind of thing and he would go rough people up unless they gave him money uh and he was getting so much money you know he's like oh i can afford to eat the tenderloin instead of the chuck roast now right and uh, the latter half of the 20, uh, 19th century in america a lot of a lot of cities had tenderloin districts you know it was like kind of the so how did that i've heard that story before yeah. right but how did it go from him buying finer cuts of meat at the butcher to the neighborhood being called the tenderloin well i think because uh you know uh these areas where these businesses that maybe yeah, had something going on in the back room that was kind of you know illegal or uh frowned upon whatever uh you know, because they were under the protection of the police, uh, they were able to persist. I guess the name kind of just stuck. Uh, certainly, it was in New York first, but then, like I said, many American cities had tenderloin districts. And uh, oh, that story you just told was it was from the name originated in, in New, York. New York. Yeah, yeah. And um, are there any cities that still call them the tenderloin? Because I don't, you San know, San Francisco's the last one. Last one. Okay. Because yeah, I was gonna say I can't. But yeah. yeah, and uh, I mean, our our museum focuses kind of 20th century, uh, 1906. You know, there's a big earthquake, fire destroys most of the city, and it's when a lot of the buildings were uh, erected that are still are still there. And I think definitely those buildings are kind of what makes the Tenderloin feel like you're. I mean, it feels very New York to me. These older kind of uh, these older buildings. I mean, it's very. It was built to be very dense kind of residential uh housing for working or working people uh primarily you know this is before the bay bridge before the golden gate uh san francisco had a very active port there was a lot of military presence there were two world wars there were a couple world's fairs you had these big civic projects happening not to mention the rebuilding of san francisco after uh 1906 and uh you know so you had these people that were coming to work in San Francisco, uh, maybe for a few months at a time, kind of extended stays. They were probably single people. They were probably men. 
from some other place. So they were kind of, you know, in a new environment where they weren't connected to their family, to their town, people who knew, knew them. And um, I think that environment, you know, allowed for some, uh, you know, communities to develop and flourish. I'm thinking in particular, you know, queer, queer spaces, gay bars, uh, you know, everything on the spectrum in that regards, as well as, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, organized labor activity was focused there. Um, and, uh, you know, that was, uh, uh, because there were so many people living there that were working that were, you know, like I said, these kind of people that were in for in town for a little while and extended stay, you know, uh, bars, clubs, theaters, cropped up in the in the ground floors you know these people weren't cooking for themselves they weren't you know you didn't have a living room so you'd go hang out at the restaurant and mm. the hotel bar and um and then uh you know some of these theaters and cabarets they would have you know the gambling in the back room or there would be the you know the the brothel next door that kind of thing i mean great american that's kind of the the lore around that was uh, in its earliest days uh, the, the building, you know, next door, it was this fancy supper club and the building next door, you know, had, uh, well, I heard when we, the last time we played the great American music hall, one of the employees there told me a story. The dressing rooms are downstairs, right? Uh huh. And, uh, the main dressing room where the headliner hangs out, <clears throat> there's a little small little thing down. It looks like a drum riser. There's a little tiny stage about eight inches high, you know, just a little tiny wooden thing. And I, I wondered why it was there, and uh, it's just sitting in the middle of this dressing room with couches and chairs and stuff all around, and there's this little wooden thing there, and I was wondering why that was there, and one of the employees said, oh, well, that dressing room used to be the speakeasy back in the Prohibition days. <laughs> the, 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 sh the regular show with you know the, the follies or whatever was going on upstairs. Right. Um, and then downstairs was the speakeasy. And that room, and that was a stage for a little jazz trio that would be playing. Oh. And they'd be serving up gin and beer you know, to the folks that had the secret password to get in there right. or whatever. And it was, you know, that was yeah. like, that's the the main dressing room downstairs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, the great, yeah, it's the great American has so much history. It's, it's truly unreal. It's, yeah. uh, it's, it's kind of the most extraordinary, uh, still, it's really a great, man. Uh, it's yeah. extant. Beautiful. <laughs> and yeah, that it still exists. It's great. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, I mean that's uh that's kind of the the origins of the museum and its story. I mean, of course, now we're uh uh you know, we we work a lot with the many 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 community groups in the neighborhood uh that do everything from more social service oriented work to more arts programming. I mean, uh are because of this kind of nightlife scene, this theater scene, performance scene, you know, uh there, I feel like there's always been a really strong presence of of artists and musicians and uh all those sorts of people in the neighborhood mm. and uh and i think that you know that's still true uh to this day to some extent i mean there's certainly a, a lot of very unique very you know specific to their places sorts of uh art spaces and uh and happenings squirreled away in the tenderloin and uh uh and i mean it's just like a very you know it's a very vibrant rich community uh oh, in that regards that's awesome um, we do have those tickets to give away. 
Yeah. Should we? How we want to give them away to the yeah. big show? Are we going to? We've been ask? we've been like rambling on. I'm like, hey, uh, we're just going to sit here and talk forever. How, we get, how are we going to give them away? I don't know. We'll think about something. Um, I was wondering though, you know, you guys used to put out lots of live records. Yeah. You got any live stuff that you haven't put out, like yeah. uh, from the Sound of Music or anything? Did you I ever put know, out? I don't know about Sound of Music, but we do have tons of live stuff. Why did you guys put out so many live records back in well, the day? For one thing, <laughs> Flipper was a live band. I mean, our shows were pretty cool and crazy, and there was a lot of really great energy at the club, so you want to try to ca- capture that energy somehow or another. And... Um, I don't know. It was cheaper than going into a recording studio. You know, you just. <laughs> yes, that's a good point. <laughs> Ted had a um, a little Sony professional grade, a little Sony uh, stereo cassette uh, recorder. You know, and it was a pro grade little. It was very small, and he brought it with him everywhere we went. Every and you'd record on a cassette, and it had a stereo external stereo microphone, and he would like hang it from the ceiling. And put the deck at the soundboard, and um, we recorded all of our shows um, for years. You know, everywhere we toured, we record our shows. Sure. That ended up being the double live album. It was all from Ted's cassette recordings. Mm, yeah, um, the Public Flipper Limited live record. And then we did professionally record um, the CBGB's album, uh, Blowing Chunks. Um, in 1984, I think that came out. But they had recording equipment at CBGB's, and so we recorded two of our shows there, and pick and we picked and chose songs to go onto the album from the two shows. And um, so, yeah. Um, so anyway, there you know there was that one, and yeah. and you guys were lucky too. You had lots of videos because I know my favorite video of you guys playing live is from the Berkeley Square. Was that like 1980 or something? And yeah, the audience is just Joe like... Joe Reese, Target you, video. Yeah, you're just all like right in it and everybody's going crazy. It's just so much fun. Yeah. So. Yeah, uh, Joe Reese was a, a trailblazer. There were many trailblazers in the late 70s um, in San Francisco doing film, video, photography, all kinds of art. Many of... Talking to the mutants yesterday, those guys all came out of art school. Many of the people that were in the scene came from San Francisco Art Institute, and they were doing all kinds of different things, you know, from mm-hmm. photography to film to sculpture to painting and writers, you know. And, and also, the, I mean, video as a uh, kind of an accessible medium was a very new thing. I mean, you talk about Joe Reese and Target Video. Yeah, and, and nobody, yeah, there wasn't people running around <clears throat> with handy cams. It was like right. he had a big old camera that cost a lot of money. Yeah. And they were like huge. You had to hold them on their sh- on your shoulder, you know. Yeah, the, the I remember those? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, that was Dale Hoyt's background. Was uh, you know com- when he went to SFAI, he was uh, primarily interested in in video work yeah. and uh, sort of the specific, you know, as opposed to film. Uh, video art was kind of what he was working in on its kind of earlier earlier days. Was a Namjoon Pike. Uh, fan and disciple uh that kind of thing so uh it's it's like interesting to see how a how a a format or a medium can you know both uh document and also shape 
the art that's being made. You know, you talk about Ted with his cassette recorder, right? I mean, now you have this incredible archive, and you wouldn't have been able to do that probably a few years earlier. Yeah, right, right. And but yeah, especially because a lot of bands just get lost to time. Mm-hmm. Not anymore, because everyone's got a damn camera and a Everyone video. Everyone literally yeah. has a camera now. <laughs> yeah. Everything is over-documented now. Yeah. <laughs> All right, what should we ask? What should we ask our audience? Um, we can't we can't just make it easy because i cannot approve of that okay um does anyone know the story since we were just talking about this does anyone know the story about how the double live record which is entitled public flipper limited does anyone know the story about how that came to be called public flipper limited Oh, I do. Oh, wait, I'm going to go to the show anyway. 415-648-SFCRs, and I'm here in the studio. I got a pair of tickets to go to the Great American Music Hall Thursday night. It's all ages, so kids, call. You're probably out of school by now. Um, Flipper with the new singer, Fletcher. Fletcher Shears from The Garden. The Mutants and a surprise to be TBA. Yes, a Opening bands. <laughs> the Longshoremen will not be playing. But, um, yeah, we got a pair of tickets. So if you know why Flipper called that album. Public Flipper Limited. Yeah. And, you you know, what does that sound like to you, Public Flipper Limited? Does it sound like That one might be too easy. It's similar to another band. But you got to know why. That's not the reason why. You got to know why we called it Public Flipper Limited. There was a reason, a specific reason why. All right. I'm going to play a Flipper song, and then we'll be back after we give away the tickets. It's KXSF, too. Is everybody on speed or something? I'm getting a contact on like a birth up with them. Do we have some? Anybody got a line or anything? I mean, I'm picking up this contact tie on like speed or something, you know? I mean, like what's going on in the East Bay? You guys got some good stuff or something?
It's KXSF. That was live flipper. Love Canal. That was from the Berkeley Square show that I was talking about the video that I enjoy so much. And from the album, Public Flipper Limited. Are you going to tell us the story? Should I tell the story? Yes. Okay, I'll tell the story. <laughs> and then the first person who calls and knows why. <laughs> but anyway, um, so Flipper put out an, our very first album called in 1982 and it was called album generic flipper was the subtitle the uh, title was album and it was um black lettering on a yellow background so back in those days there was a line of generic products that were huge it was a thing and um, it was like store brands but it was a generic product that was everywhere all over the place is it the same one that's featured in repo man I didn't see Repo Man, oh, okay. but probably. But yeah, yeah, they have that whole yeah. thing about so, the So, I mean, okay. you could buy any, you know, any product you could think of was, you know, there was a, it was just like the name of the, of the product on plain, anyway, the, the, the packaging design was all these products, it was all looked the same, right? It was like whatever the product was on, in black lettering on a yellow background. And that was the packaging design. So, and then after that and that was hugely popular because they were cheaper to buy so everyone was buying that black on yellow design generic products in every supermarket so we ted came having an art background and stuff he thought that looked cool and it might be a good design for our first album so we went with it and it was great we loved it so just album generic flipper so it was uh you know the black lettering on the yellow background and it, I guess the generic products were so popular. I don't know who was behind it all, but a second generic packaging design came out. So it must have been a whole nother generic company said, this is hot stuff. Let's do it ourselves. So they came up with a different packaging design. I remember seeing it and it was a uh, blue lettering on a white background. 
So there was the blue and white generic product line as well. So anyway, Flipper put out our album in 1982. In 1985, PIL put out an album with the blue on white generic packaging design. And again, it was album was the title. So they released their own generic album. And so when I saw that, I I wasn't mad at it or anything, but I just like I was like, well, that's kind of cool. They say what imitation is the greatest uh, compliment or whatever that's former flattery. Yes. Yeah. So um, but I, I it had it could not go unanswered, you know, so. I had to, I, in my own mind, I'm like, I have to answer this, you know, I have to react to it. So we had this double live record that was ready pretty much in the pack. You know, right. We had the album cover design. That was a big deal. Cause it was a, a game board, the double album folded out and it was a whole game board with game pieces and everything. And it was, you know, similar to the game of life. We based it on that. Right. But it was like a map of the, like a cartoon map of the United States. And you, roll the or there was a spinner you'd spin it move your piece your game piece along the the road and there were consequence cards and everything you pick a card and it was like uh you know you ran out of gas or your car got stolen or whatever you know stuff that would happen on tour that was either something good or something bad <laughs> and then that's how the game was played and uh, it was the first uh interactive album cover that i've ever i don't know if there's ever been one besides that you know but anyway um what was I saying? What was I, what was the question? Um, I forgot. <laughs> talking about doing uh yeah, just making the album because in a reaction. To oh yeah, yeah, the PIL thing. Yeah. So um, anyway, we had the record ready to go, but it had no title. So I, I I'm like public image limited, oh, public flipper limited. Oh, boom, there it <laughs> yep. is. So you know it was <laughs> and it, the album title really worked because public it was a live record, so public. Yep. Flipper, it's flipper, and then limited the tracks on there that we chose were limited from. It even says on the record from 1980 to 85 was all the live recordings came from that time period. So it was limited to that time period. <laughs> so it was public flipper limited. Now, did you ever? You know, it's been many years. Do you ever get run into Johnny Rotten and talk to him about this? And... No, not about that. But no? something else funny happened. Like one of the first times they came and played San Francisco, they had a press conference. PIL had a press conference in one of the clubs in North Beach. And um, it was a daytime thing. They got used to this. I think it was a dance club. Hmm. They got used to this club to do their press conference. And every punk in town showed up for this press conference. I don't think there was any press there. It was like them sitting up on a table and every punk in town asking them ridiculous questions. And, uh, and um, oh, our guitar player, Ted, they had a limo, a stretch limo parked out in front. The driver was kind of asleep in the limo waiting for them to do their thing. And he just waited in the limo, but it was parked right in front of the club. And so Ted Falcone, who, as I mentioned, created the Flipper logo, he uh, got down on his hands and knees. He, he was never without a fat black magic marker, a, a big Sharpie, those big fat wedge Sharpies, you know, mm -hmm. always had those. And he tagged the Flipper logo everywhere. He got down on his hands and knees and crawled around this limo. And limos have those little chrome round little hubcaps. And he put the flipper fish on all four hubcaps, you know, unbeknownst <laughs> to the driver. And so <laughs> a couple of years later, we were playing a show in, in New York uh, called Danceteria. And um, 
this cat by the name of uh, Nile Rogers, who was in Chic. Oh, yeah. He came up to me after we played the show, and he goes, Hey, man, I really dug you guys. That was a great groove you were playing on. I, he was referring <laughs> to Sex Bomb. He's like, that was a really great groove. I really liked that. You guys are great. Cool. And he invited, he wanted to buy, he said, let me buy you guys a drink. So he buys us all a drink and he invited us to go to Warner Brothers the next day to see a screening of a movie that he did the soundtrack for. So we go to Warner Brothers. We watch this movie sitting in the right in front of us was Keith Levine from PIL and his girlfriend. We all watched the same movie together. And then riding the elevator down from after the film screening, it was Flipper and Keith Levine and his girlfriend sharing an elevator. So I said to him, hey, this is Ted. He's the guy that put Flipper Fish on the hubcaps of your limo that time when you guys did a press conference. And he goes, oh, man, we got sued for that. Uh. And we all started laughing. How would you get sued for that? He yeah. goes, uh, we got the limo company sued us for damage to their limo. And uh, he goes, oh, the record company paid for it, whatever the lawsuit was. You know? <laughs> and uh, so anyway. <laughs> well, they really ended up paying for it. <laughs> um, I do want to say it's KXSF LP, San Francisco Community Radio. Got to do that at the top of the hour. There it is. <laughs> Pretty, well, it's too bad you never get to talk to Johnny about it, though. Yeah. <laughs> Uh-oh. Silence. We Silence. haven't had a phone call. I'm wondering. I know. I'm wondering why we haven't had a phone. I don't call. know. We do have tickets to give away. Anyone out there wants to go see Flipper? Always fun playing with the mutants and a special TBA guest. Yep. Great American Music Hall Thursday, all ages show too. If you don't call and get these tickets, you're gonna really regret it. Yeah, four one five six four eight SFCR is the number here in the studio. Four one five six four eight seven three two seven. Maybe while we're waiting for somebody to call in, uh, I'm going to ask you a question that Dale asked Ted uh, that has to do with this generic uh, sort of branding. Um, Because one of the clubs we talk a lot about a lot in this Tenderloin Museum show is Club Generic, which was uh, certainly bands played there from time to time, but it was a bit of a kind of DIY live workspace uh, that hosted a lot of you know, performance art, film screenings, video screenings. Where was that? So it would have been on Leavenworth between uh, Turk and Eddie. So about half block down from where the museum is now and right around the corner from Sound of Music. And it was an after-hours club. Uh, so they would, you know, open the doors at, I don't know, 11 or midnight and, you know, do parties there until 3. You'd pay 2 bucks to get in, uh, and then you could drink all the generic beer uh, that your body <laughs> could tolerate. Uh, and from the many folks, you know, interviewed for the, the gallery show who hung out there and performed there. I mean, it sounded like on occasion there was more than beer being, uh, shared. Um, but Dale asked Ted, he was like, cause like club generic would have started up around, around 80 and it had a few different iterations. I think, uh, the tenderloin was the first one and then it was in the, the mission a little bit later and, you know, eventually kind of morphed into what would be known as oddball films. Uh, but, uh, I remember Dale asking Ted, he's like, did you get any inspiration from, uh, from the club generic, uh, the club generic sort of setup uh, uh, with, with the, uh, with the generic flipper album? Uh, and I think Ted was like, nah, nah, I don't think so. You know, he's sort of, 
<laughs> yeah, I don't think so either. I don't know whether I even went to that club ever. I'd heard of it. But yeah, I don't think I ever went to it. But I, um, I don't know that Ted went to it either. Actually, uh, I just think it was not. You know, whatever. But speaking of inspired by generic, um, I I had heard a story. This was way back in the eighties. I had heard a story about this. Um, um, I don't know how to refer to him. I guess a scientist who was based at UCSF, right? And he was doing, I had heard about this guy who was a super flipper fan. And I had heard that he was playing the generic album in his lab at UCSF. And I had heard that he just like had it on repeat. You know, he just listened to the album over and over and over again. I heard it from some people that knew him, I guess. And I thought it was a cool story. But I eventually at the I-Beam one night, I met this guy, you know, and, um, he told me that uh, he told me the story, and in fact, we followed up, and he gave me documentation of what he was talking about. <laughs> he had been researching um, a paper he was going to publish, a scientific paper he was going to publish, and it had to do with genes, genome. I don't know, some, like research on the, hum about the, the human genome <laughs> or something, right? So anyway, um, uh so I, he tells me the story and he said that, uh, yes, indeed, he had the generic album on a turntable and he just played it over and over and over again in his lab while he's working, you know, doing his research and experiments and this, that and the other. And um, so he told me and he said, you know, I recently published the paper that, you know, came from all that research and I credited you guys. And he <laughs> said he credited generic flipper for inspiration oh. you know and i said i gotta get a copy of this paper from you so I, he gave me i followed up with him at a later date and he gave me a copy of this paper that he had written and, and had published you know to the scientific community and the title of which was three sentences long and i couldn't understand one single word of it and um yet you inspired it. yeah Very and then, nice. but i flipped to the back page where it had all his acknowledgments and things and he literally and it was there you know, inspired by generic flipper, you know, for mm -hmm. pretty cool story. Great. So people of all walks of life were flipper fans, you know, <laughs> yeah. all walks. Crazy. Now, do you ever have any like small children who weren't around in the 80s coming to shows? Yeah, it's usually people's kids, you know, people that were fans of ours back in the day now have kids. They, they so bring they, their own they kids. They bring them to the shows. Now, do the kids know. enjoy it when they get dragged or... <laughs> Yeah, they do. Yeah, right. they do. Yeah, they do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they do. I remember we did a matinee show all ages at or um, bottom of the hill a few years back, and there were lots of little kids. Yeah. you know. I mean, I can't imagine going to a show of any band with my parents when I was a kid. Right. I never did. Right. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's one of those things. I know parents and kids go to shows now together, but yeah, couldn't imagine it back in my day. Right. But it's cute. Yeah, yeah, for Ooh. sure. All right, well, you guys, you know, you've been here so long. If you don't want to hang around, I'm enjoying it. But <laughs> um, <laughs> if you well, got if you got other things to do besides yeah, hang um, out and chat with me, yeah, yeah, I got a rehearsal to go to, and I have to be uh -oh. there um, in about an hour. All but, right. uh, do you have any news uh, about Bruce Luce? Is he? Yeah, we spoke with him a little a few weeks ago. We had a little conference call with him, and we talked about doing a show with him. Oh yeah. Yeah, he's, you know, he's been suffering with a broken back for decades now. And from, since 94, he broke his back. Oh, my gosh. Um, but 
Um, he, you know, he had some back surgeries, which kind of fixed him up for a while and we were active with him and then, but it's always been a degenerative situation for him. So even with the surgeries where they fused various discs mm-hmm. together and stuff like that, you know, after a while it's, you know, it just became more and more painful for him to perform with us. And, you know, so he bowed out at a certain point in time right. and, um, that's when we got David Yao to come on board with us. Um, Who else is in the band, too? We, we always talk about the singer, but... Ted Falcone and Ted, myself Ted are and the you. two last remaining original members. And then um, we have, well, we have an old friend of ours, Rachel, on bass. Uh, sometimes we use various other bass players. We've toured with Mike Watt. Um, our old pal Bruno. You know, we've had numerous different bass players with us. Um but, and, is, uh, and Rachel's playing on Thursday? She's on Thursday. We'll be playing bass with us. Yeah. All right. She's from Mud Women and yep. um, uh, Wild Women from Borneo or some crazy. <laughs> and then she was in a couple different bands. Um, so, But she's really good. She's a great bass player, and she's an old pal. We've known her forever. Great. That sounds awesome. Yeah. So we'll get one more plug then. So the show is Thursday, Great American Music Hall, Flipper. Thursday, the, Great American Music Hall, Flipper. With the new singer, Fletcher. Yeah. And um, Mutants, and then a surprise, and a surprise guest. guest. Yeah, Thursday night, Great American Music Hall, all ages show, everyone go. Right. And then we have the Tenderloin Museum, which everyone should go check out as well. The, the right. punk exhibit is going until? Yep, punk performance in the loin. It's uh, going to be up until July 2nd. The museum's open uh, Tuesday through Sunday, 10 to 5. And, uh, yeah, come visit us. Eddie and Leavenworth. All right. It's going to be great. Thank you guys so much for coming in. This has been really fun. Thank you for having us. I could chat all day. Thanks, Carolyn. Thank you, and we'll see you Thursday. Sounds good. Bye.
That is Flipper. Thanks to Steve and Alex for coming in. What fun. I could just talk. Punk history forever. Ha 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 ha. The name of the song off of the 1980 Love Canal 7-inch. And we heard Flipper, The Way of the World from Generic. Lots of fun uh, stories there. And of course, go see Flipper at the Great American Music Hall Thursday. Thursday. 